Let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that uh, we praise you for paying our debt, for making us right with you. Uh, <clears throat> God, uh, uh, this, this passage, this time of preparation for this, uh, this message has been weighty for me, convicting for me, uh, and just even to have a moment with uh, my, wa- my wife last night to think, oh, if this message was, was just for me to be convicted of my own sin uh, in my own heart, then, then praise you, God. Um, but I pray that if there is a word for this body, <clears throat> that you would speak, Lord, um, that they wouldn't see me, they wouldn't see, they won't hear my voice, but they would hear you and however you find fit to speak of your love, of your truth to this church. Be with us in this time, in Christ's name, amen. Um, I think, I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with the experience of, um, I don't know, you you, you stand in line for an extra slice of pizza, or I was talking to a sister this morning about, um, you know, getting a few extra sprinkles of sugar or pumps of creamer in their coffee, and then you see the look that someone gives you. Um, I, I don't deal with the coffee thing because I drink my coffee black, but I'm, but I'm sure uh, um, there's something that we've all experienced. Like, we've, we've, we've felt that I, oh, and you know, you've told them, don't judge me. You can't judge me. And then, you know, kind of hid your coffee or whatever. Uh, you may have heard, uh, you can't judge me, only God can. Only God can judge me, don't judge me. Don't you know that Jesus said in the Bible, don't judge or you'll be judged? Don't you know that Jesus said that in the Bible? Uh, during my time of preparation for this message, I heard and read over and over again how this text, Matthew 7 Verses 1 through 6 was one of the most misunderstood and misapplied texts in all of Scripture, both by believers and non-believers. But I'm sure you've heard other messages and say, that, oh, no, is this the one that's the most uh, misapplied text? Uh, but it's misapplied in how Jesus' words are incorrectly taken as a prohibition for any form of judgment. Now, I think the trends of the world, what we see in culture... I believe, actually does make it more and more difficult to publicly make a moral judgment. However, as concerning as this censorship of biblical right moral judgment is, I believe there is another type of judgment that is as concerning, if not more concerning, to the church. I think we see that in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Our text is part of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapters, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. You may be familiar with the term kingdom ethics, right? It's this ideal ethics of how believers are supposed to strive to live while recognizing that they will far short. 
you know, last year, uh, early last year, we went through the Beatitudes. Uh, Pastor Mike led us through that wonderfully. Uh, and starting in, in, and then in chapter 6, Jesus starts to lay out these principles for spiritual, religious life, you know, everyday life. And then coming to chapter 7, there's this focus on right human relations. And so he moves from personal temptation to interpersonal temptations. And so from our text, what we're going to see is what exactly Jesus meant when he said, judge not that you be not judged. And then we'll see what biblical judgment should look like. And so the main idea for today's message is this. Biblical judgment starts with self-examination and ends with edification. Biblical judgment starts with self-examination and ends with edification. So what did Jesus mean when he said, judge not? Or as you may have read uh, a little easier in, in the NIV, do not judge. What did he mean when he said that? The Greek verb krino, translated as to judge, is, is nuanced, and it really depends on how it is used. So, um, but, but, but there is this general sense of making a judgment upon something or someone, or uh, to determine, to pronounce one's opinion. So when taken out of context, there is some validity to someone, whether a believer or not, saying, see, Jesus said, don't judge, so you can't judge me for what I did or how I live my life. Unfortunately, for those who misapply Jesus' words, context is everything. As, as Pastor Mike has said, you know, context is king. And the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is not prohibiting all forms of judgment. For one, we see Jesus himself doing plenty of judging all throughout the New Testament. For the sake of time, we're not going to get into all the different instances of that, but when you get a chance, uh, open up to Matthew 23, especially if you're in need of some real rich encouragement and, and comfort. Open to Matthew 23, and you're probably going to lose count of how many times Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites, fools, blind, he calls them serpents and broods of viper. He makes all sorts of judgment, judgment, and calls out their false leadership. It's really uplifting, really uplifting stuff. But all the sarcasm aside, jokes aside, Jesus did not shy away from making moral judgments, right judgments, passing judgment upon people, and he wasn't just expressing his humble opinion. He was confronting people with the truth. And not only does Jesus himself do quite a bit of judging, but he also calls us to judge. We see in our, in our, in our text in verse 6, where Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under the foot and turn, trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, while there is some debate as to you know, who exactly is he referring to when he talks about the dogs and the, and the pigs. But what does seem clear is that there is a necessity to right judgment when it comes to those who reject and ridicule the gospel. And that his holy word, his precious pearls of truth are not to be wasted in vain. So there is right judgment. Just a few verses down in chapter 7, Jesus talks about the false teachers or the false prophets, and he says that they'll be recognized or judged by their fruit. 
When we get to chapter 18, later we see this whole process of how one is to confront another brother who, is, who has sinned to go and to tell them of his fault. So there is a clear call to discern truth from error according to his word. So based on how he himself judged, based on how he calls us to make right judgment of others, Jesus would be a self-made hypocrite. He would be the hypocrite. He would be contradicting himself if judge not that you be not judged was a prohibition of any form of judgment. Right moral judgment according to the word of God is not just highly suggested, recommended. It's absolutely necessary. It is vital. The believer's concern concern should not be of creating some safe space where everyone and anyone is empowered to speak their own truth, but a space where we're encouraged, the believers are encouraged to speak the truth. And so if Jesus is not prohibiting all forms of judgment, then what is he prohibiting? I think it'll be helpful for us to briefly touch on verses 3 and 4, and then we'll kind of come back to verse 2. So let's look at Matthew 7, verses 3 and 4. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to a brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? So Jesus here is using hyperbole. It's an an exaggeration to illustrate a person who sees the sins and flaws of another brother, but not his own. And we're going to get into the details of this, you know, this illustration of you know, different sizes and pieces of wood getting stuck in people's eyes. We're going to get into that, but for now, we're going to go back to verse 2. Verse 2 reads, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus here is pointing out the hypocrisy in holding others to a standard that one is not willing to or able to hold himself to which is exactly why Jesus says in verse 5, you hypocrite. And I believe when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, so what he is forbidding is harsh and hypercritical judgment, being overly critical, assuming people's motives, being haste, being quick to judge, and ultimately it is hypocritically judging others. Let's call it hypocritical judgmentalism. It's a lot of syllables, but I'm calling it hypocritical judgmentalism. The Greek construct, construction of the judge not is, is, it actually carries the idea of seizing what you're doing now. So it's not a, hey, don't do this later or not do this later. He's saying, stop what you're doing now. So we can almost translate this as stop judging people hypocritically now. So when Jesus does, he does advocate for passing on right, moral, biblical judgment, he's also forbidding being judgmental. So what we do see is distinction between right judging and being judgmental. There's a distinction there. Hypocritical judgmentalism being hypocritically judgmental, is highly problematic in many ways. In many ways, but I think our text bears out two of them. One, and there is poor judgment. There's poor judgment in the sense that we ourselves incorrectly 
assume the role of a judge. So there's poor judgment of ourselves, and then we also do a poor job analyzing or making judgments of others. We see in more than a few places in the scriptures, Jesus making the connection between being hypocritical and being blind. Going back to Matthew 23, the, you know, the very uplifting words of Jesus to the, the scribes and the Pharisees, it's, it's actually hard not to notice how many times their hypocrisy is tied to their blindness, and specifically how their hypocrisy affects their ability to lead and teach others. Hypocritical judgment comes from a place of playing God, maybe not even knowingly, and by extension, being above criticism and judgment. And as we live under this false illusion, we think we know more than we actually do. We assume a whole lot of things, such as verifiable facts, life circumstances, history, internal motives. Those are just to name a few. And we give ourselves such a high score to our ability to judge correctly. Do we not? In verse 4, Jesus says to take out the log, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck in your brother's eye. Meaning, if you've got a log in your eye, you cannot see clearly the speck in your brother's eye. So by judging others hypocritically, the law causes a, a blurring of your spiritual eyes. And so due to your blindness, not only are you faulty in your own judgment of yourself, but the judgment of others. So hypocritical judgment, with hypocritical judgment, there is poor judgment of self and of others. And not only is it problematic because of our poor judgment, but it ultimately leads to painful judgment. Judgment of the self-appointed, self-righteous judge. As one scholar put it, quote, to be judgmental is dangerous to the victim because of the bias against him. It is even more dangerous to the judge because by the standard of measure with which he judges others, it will be measured to him. Now, while I reject any notion that just because, or I reject any, any notion that you know, a, a person is eternally damned because of the, the handful of times, because you know, we don't do it more than a handful of times, that, 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 that any harsh and hypocritical judgment of others, that they therefore are eternally damned. I, I reject that. But we would be fools, blind fools, to think that Jesus does not take such judgment of others seriously. He's warning against a pattern of judgmentalism that clearly lacks a genuine heart of repentance. And the warning is very clear. Don't get too comfortable with being judgmental because there are consequences for having a hypocritical spirit. I don't know where you are when it comes to uh, your judgment of others or your view of others. and You might be the type of person that doesn't give a rip about what other people say about you, think about you, how poorly or accurately they judge you, and you have little to no regard for what they think of even your judgment of them. Don't really care. Or you might be the type of person that maybe cares too much about what others think and say about you. Probably somewhere in the middle. This question applies to all of us, including myself. Do you care how God judges you? 
Do you care how God judges you more than how others judge you? Do you see yourself as God sees you? And do you see the sin and judgment as God does? And so when Jesus says, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do those words from Jesus mean anything? Do they carry any weight in our lives? Does it maybe even instill a healthy sense, dose of fear? Or is it just another one of those passages that needs a little bit more context? This hypocritical, hypercritical spirit, the hypocritical judgmentalism, is so dangerous because the way we think and speak of others, while we wouldn't say it with our own mouths, it exposes our unrighteous judgment of others, which deserves the holy wrath of God. Romans 2, Paul writes to the Romans, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Would you agree that such judgmentalism is one of the most acceptable sins of our day? I came across an article earlier this week. Uh, it was on pornography and how it has become an acceptable sin. Not just in the world, but progressively in the church as well. And as I was preparing for this message, it got me thinking, watching pornography or all other forms of sexual immorality, I think it's pretty accurate that it's becoming an acceptable sin in the church. But hypocritical judgment... It's not becoming an acceptable sin. It's already an acceptable sin. It's an acceptable sin right now. Now, while I don't think anyone, any of us here would be advocates for such judgment of others, but I do wonder if it is something that we've gotten really comfortable with and normalized in our personal lives and in the church. It's widely accepted because, I mean, we all do it. And we excuse ourselves because no one's perfect, right? It's accepted because even though it's not the best thing to do to another person, but it doesn't really do any real harm. It's acceptable because whatever my problems are, they're not as bad as his problems. And it's something that we so often do in the name of I'm so concerned. I'm so worried about this person. We are so gracious, forgiving, merciful, patient, understanding, asking others for the benefit of the doubt, giving ourselves all the excuses in the world, yet when it comes to others, we are harsh, condemning, impatient, lacking of grace and mercy. We don't want to hear any of their excuses and we hold others to the standard that we cannot hold ourselves to. We are so judgmental that we are judgmental of their judgmentalism. 
And because hypocritical judgment seems to be this acceptable sin, I mean, it's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as an acceptable sin in the eyes of God. But we're quick to forget that there is a log stuck in our own eye. And we're so concerned with what seems to be a speck in their eye. Hypocritical judgment leads to poor judgment and painful judgment. So, so far, we've made this distinction between judging rightly and being judgmental, right? And we saw how, just now, hypocritical judgment, how it leads to poor judgment of self and others, but also painful judgment for the quote-unquote judge. Jesus says in John 7, verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So what does it look like to right, to, to judge with right judgment? What does biblical judgment look like? I believe our text gives a clear blueprint for that. So as I said, that we'll be going back to verses 3 and 4. Let's go back to verse 3, 4, and 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to a brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I don't know about you guys, but for me, I always I used to always visualize the log or the plank if you, in the NIV, that it was just this like large piece of wood. So at best, it was like a big piece of like campfire wood. It's kind of how I had always visualized it. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, turns out this, the, the log is more like a beam. It's like a piece of heavy timber used in construction. So it's like what you would use to build a temple or put a roof. Um, I heard someone say it's a, a, a nice visual would be like, think, of, think about like a telephone pole. <laughs> so when we think about this, even if it's hyperbole, and Jesus is just trying to make a point, like really you try to visualize it, it's pretty ridiculous when you think about a person that's got a beam stuck in their eye, and you look at the person across from them and you say, you think you see like a speck or like a wood chip at best from the guy across from you. And, and, and then this person gets really loud and, and uh, says, hey, 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 you, you got something in your eye. Let me, let me help you take it out. When you've got a beam or a telephone pole sticking out of your own eye. I believe... Jesus' use of the log versus the speck here is simply to humble us. It's to humble us. Not to look at anyone else but ourselves. It's to see our own brokenness, our own sin before a perfect and righteous God. More than it is about comparing our sins to be greater than the sins of others. I think God just wants us to look just me and my sin and my fallenness. So in other words, Jesus is saying, what are you doing worrying about whatever that guy's got stuck in his eye when you've got a beam stuck in your eye? So how do we judge rightly? Biblical judgment, as I said in the introduction, first starts with self-examination. It starts with self-examination before judging or examining others. It starts with us pointing the finger at ourselves not looking around and worrying about what other people's sins and flaws are. It starts with us looking into a mirror and dealing with our own sin. 
It starts with us first noticing the beam that is sticking out of our own eye. It starts with us examining our own actions and our own hearts to see if there's any unrepented sin. And it ultimately starts with us looking at the cross, being reminded of the depths of our depravity and our desperate need of a merciful and gracious God. It starts with resisting the temptation to be like the Pharisee in Luke 18, who was sinfully playing this comparison game. And what does he say? He thanks God for not being like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But we are to take up the posture of the tax collector, who stood at a distance, couldn't even lift up his eyes, face to the ground, beating his chest, and what does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It starts with believing in the words of Paul. When he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the chief, the worst. That's what Jesus meant when he said, first take out the log out of your own eye. Biblical biblical judgment must start with self Examination. How often do you listen to a sermon and think, oh man, I really wish this person was here to hear that word. (laughs) (laughs) When's the last time you listened to a sermon and thought to yourself, I needed that word? more than anyone else, not because it gave me the fuzzies, not because it comforted me, encouraged me, but because the word of God pierced your heart like a double-edged sword, and you were freshly convicted of your sin and were praising God for his grace. (laughs) How often do you read the Bible and a person quickly comes to mind? how the word of God perfectly applies to his or her life. Rather than seeing how God is speaking to you, how his word speaks more loudly to your life. When you get into an argument with your spouse or with your friend, maybe you did that today on your way here, how quick are you and how quick were you to point out their wrongdoings and their flaws. It's all about you, what you did. What about you? Before we realize anything we ourselves did. How frustrated and fed up are you right now because you always seem to be the one to have to initiate reconciliation. How much resentment and bitterness do you harbor in your hearts right now because of the person's seemingly unrepentant and hardened heart? 
brothers and sisters, do we believe that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost? Do you believe that you are and do I believe that I am the chief of sinners? Self-examination is essential to biblical judgment because it leads to humility. It functions somewhat like a speed bump that slows us down to not be so quick to make judgments of people because, first, we're faced with our own sin, maybe even unrepented sin. And second, we are reminded that even for those of us who claim to have saving faith in Christ and his work on the cross, we are continuously, continually are in need of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and say yes to God. And as our self-examination leads us to repentance, reminds us of the gospel, what does it do? It affects the posture of our hearts to be gracious, merciful, understanding, compassionate towards others. You recognize that just as much as you need God's grace, that other person that you're fed up with, frustrated with, wronged you, that person also is in need of God's grace. And so when the log in your eye is first taken out, you can finally see yourself clearly. And only then can you clearly see the speck in your brother's and sister's eye. Brothers and sisters, are we broken over our sin of hypocritical judgment? Do you need to repent for your unjust judgment of people near and far? May we not forget the cost that was paid for our judgmental spirit. And may we resist the temptation to see our hypocritical judgment as an acceptable sin. That we would run to the cross and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Biblical judgment starts with self-examination. But it doesn't end with self-examination. Even if it's done with the humble spirit, it must lead to edification. It leads to building up. So biblical judgment starts with self-examination, but it ends with edification. Uh, in verse 5 of our text, there is a key element of biblical judgment, and I don't think it, there's this key, there's this key element that doesn't get enough attention. Verse 5 reads, Jesus said, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we've already talked about how we need to first take the log out or the beam out, and then we'll be able to clearly see the speck in our brother's eye. We've already talked about that. But verse 5 doesn't read, you will clearly see the speck out of your brother's eye. It says, then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This doesn't mean that, you know, some form of personal confrontation is, is a requirement for biblical judgment. I think there are certainly ways, biblical ways, that we can judge rightly without being the one to directly influence or contribute to the brother or the sister taking out their eye. But even if you don't have that kind of proximity or touch or, or a point of contact, does your heart mourn the brokenness you see? Does it bring to your knees to fast and pray for the brother or sister? Are you thinking, really wrestling with ways to lead them back to the truth? So the real question is, 
Does your judgment come from a place of love? What is the motivation for your judgment? Right judgment must come from a place of love for other people and for the church. And with this posture of humility, there must be a willingness to help, not just to see the speck, but also to take it out. So brothers and sisters, we must be the church that God has called us to be. Uh, in his message last week, Pastor Mike went over the first half of 1 Corinthians 14, if you guys remember, and he'll, he'll be uh, going over the rest of it next week. But he talked about building up, edifying the body with our gifts. So I'm actually going to take or steal his uh, main idea from last week when he asked, and I think this is a question that we can ask ourselves again, do we as a church strive to excel in building up the church? And I'll add, specifically, as we speak truth and love and help take out the speck in our brother or sister's eye. Or, or, is there some spiritual stagnation because of our unwillingness and hesitancy, whatever the reason may be? And if we're not growing, if we're not building each other up, are we actually on the trajectory of slowly but surely deteriorating? Do we have that 1 Corinthians 13's love we talked, you know, went over a few weeks ago? This love that will enable us, surely will enable us to initiate potentially difficult and uncomfortable conversations. And are we willing, willing to call each other to repentance and voice our concerns in humility? In Galatians 6, Paul writes, Brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Speaking of voicing our concerns, I did want to make a quick point on gossiping because I think there is a very close connection with hypocritical judgment, how we build each other up as a family, and gossip. I think there's a very close connection. I recently heard a pastor define gossip as talking about someone else who is not present to their detriment. Talking about someone who is not present to their detriment. And then he added, and this is the point I want us to really remember, is if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. He went on to share about, this is, a, I think, a pretty funny but sobering story. He, he shared about his mother and how she went about gossip. And, um, you know, when, when a you know, sister in the church would come up to her and say, hey, did you, did you uh, see or did you hear such and such did, you know, X, Y, and Z? And then mom would say, oh, did she? She's like, yeah, she did, she did. And she would say, then let's go talk to her right now. Let's go talk to her right now. If I give you the benefit of the doubt regarding your love and care for the person, that you have some real serious concerns, enough to talk about the person, are you willing to be part of the solution? To confront them about it? Or are you just part of the problem? Gossip in the church is toxic. It leads to death, and it must be rooted out. 
We don't realize how detrimental and hurtful your gossiping is until you're on the receiving end. Until you find out that someone, maybe even someone that you really loved and cared about, gossiped about you, said a lot of things about you, and you find out what was said about you. Then it hurts. It leads to broken trust, and it breeds division. The damage is not irreparable. I fully believe that. But it takes a lot of hard work, a lot of painful work, and there is a lasting impact. So we must resist the temptation to engage in any form of gossip. And so when someone wants to talk to you or you have the urge to talk to someone else, I hope we can all hold each other accountable and say, he did? Then let's go talk to him right now. It truly is awesome to be able to share meals together, to serve each other in times of need. I think we've done that amazingly as a church, you know, people being sick, babies, all that stuff. I think we've done an awesome job doing that. Standing each other's weddings, watching each other's babies. We got a lot of babies, uh, being aunties and uncles to all of our you know, friends, uh, children. We go on vacations together, serving the same ministry together. We watch and play sports together. Just hanging out, right? Just being in each other's presence. Like, it's, it's, it's a great thing, and I think it's really important to have those things to grow in relationship. But what makes us brothers and sisters is not because of these things. What makes us a family here is not because we like each other, we like doing stuff together, we like being around each other, and we just happen to be believers. That's not what makes us family. It is this relational focus on Christ where he is the main driving force. And the focus is on dying to self and becoming more like him. So as fellow believers, as family members here at Restore, our willingness to tell each other the hard but necessary loving things, confronting one another when they are in sin, that those things should be how we measure our closeness, our intimacy, our depth in relationship to one another. We need to stop passing up on opportunities to love and care one another. Now, I do think before there is this judgment that is motivated by love, we do need to first ask ourselves, do we have love for the church? Do you love your brothers? Do you love your sisters? Do you love their families and their children? And if you do, do you love them enough to help them take out the speck that you clearly see? And if you're realizing that maybe there is a little bit, maybe a lot of bit of lacking of love for the church and his people, especially those, especially those people that we share least in common, have the most disagreements with, people that have wronged you, people that have sinned against you? If that's you, I pray that God reminds you, reminds me of his love for the church. That your love for others in the body would grow, not because 
of what they did or didn't do. Not because you love them, uh, uh, gain their respect, but because we remember and we are overwhelmed by God's love for us first. We need each other. And because we love one another, we need to take ownership of not just making right judgment in our minds, but actually vocalizing those things in humility, humbly showing them the mirror so they can see for themselves who they actually are and what they've done. So biblical judgment certainly starts with self-examination, but it must lead to and end with edification. Coming to a close. Um, when's the last time you really looked in the mirror of God's word and the first thing that you saw was the Pharisee that thanked God for not being like the tax collector? And then you're quickly reminded and humbled by Jesus' work on the cross And then when you look at the mirror the second time, you see the tax collector who cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you have unrepented sin? Do you need to repent specifically for your hypocritical judgment? Do you need to confess your sin to someone else? Ask for forgiveness? Don't wait till tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. Lunch can wait. Getting ready for the upcoming week, that can wait. The kids, nap time, it can wait. This is a matter of life and death, family. So go make things right with your brother or your sister. And more importantly, make things right with God. And is there a speck in your brother's eye that you clearly see? Praise God. But don't look at his DNA brothers, sisters. Don't look at the the, the leaders. Don't look at the pastors. Could it be that maybe God wants to use you to speak truth to that brother or that sister that is in this body for the purpose of building up? Now, let's be clear. God is the one that is going to remove the speck, just as he's the only one that can remove the beam out of our eye. But does your love for the church push you, nudge you, encourage you to help them see the speck and to take it out? Taking out the log out of our own eye before doing anything else is really hard. Uh, It's hard to really uh, own and, and believe that we are the chief of sinners. And it's especially hard to do that before we judge others. It's actually impossible to do on our own because we have this natural bent to falsely assume the role of a judge, air quotes, right? That we think we are the judge. Our eyes only look outward. And when it comes to taking out the speck of our brother, confronting them with truth, calling them out in their sin, that's really hard too especially for those that we're closer to. Who likes to have uncomfortable conversations? Who here enjoys calling out the sins of our brothers and sisters? It's certainly easier to talk about them than to talk to them. Can I say that? 
And it's a lot easier to stay at a distance and not be part of the solution. But when the Holy Spirit does that amazing supernatural work in our hearts, leads us to the mirror of his word, where we examine ourselves, humbled before the cross, we see the beam that is stuck in our eye, we see who we truly are, broken, helpless sinners in need of God's grace. It's that same spirit that gives us true love for his people and his church. He gives us the wisdom and the discernment to clearly see the speck in his, in his eye or her eye, to judge rightly, lovingly, and to lead and guide us how to best help them take the speck out. Brothers and sisters, judge not that you be not judged. Biblical judgment starts with self-examination and ends with edification. Let's pray. Uh, worship team, if you can come up. Also, uh, we'll have uh, Pastor